years ago, I did a study of Psalm 23, and it talks about surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That word for follow has the idea of pursuing. Think about the life of David. All that David experienced in his life, God continued to pursue him with his goodness and his mercy. God is pursuing us with his goodness and his grace and his mercy. And I hope that you've experienced that this morning. You know, Luke asked me before he came up here, he says, well, do you want me to read a scripture? Sometimes we have him read a scripture. And I said, no, I'm going to have us read uh, the text that I'm going to look at. And then he comes up here and he reads from the book of Philippians. And he talks about being united in Christ. That's one of our themes, that we are united with Christ because of what he's done for his life, death, and burial, and resurrection. And then we sing about the goodness of God. Have you experienced the goodness of God? Do you look at your life as seeing and experience the richness and the beauty of God's goodness, even in the midst of difficulties and challenges of life? God is good, and he's loving, and he cares for us. And I hope that you are able to experience God's goodness this morning as we look to him, as we look to his word. I, I love to hear about stories. Um, I, I love stories. I'm not a joke teller, but I love stories. And, and I love to hear about stories where people are encouraged in their faith. In 2015, there's a high school basketball team um, called the Gainesville Tornadoes. They're from Gainesville, Texas. And it's a high school basketball team, and they basically had zero fan base. Uh, one Gainesville player said this, My parents came to one game, but they didn't come to the other ones because they didn't have time. The other students at Gainesville, a juvenile correction facility for felony offenders, don't come to any of the games mostly because, obviously, they're unable to get out. One of the few perks at the facility for very good behavior is a chance to leave the prison a few times a year to play basketball. Well, they were to play against a private school by the name of Vanguard, which is a prep school in Waco. And it was before that match that two of the players for Vanguard had an idea. Hudson Bradley and Ben Martinson announced that it didn't seem right to play a team that had no fans, that had zero fan base. So before their game with Gainesville, Bradley and Martinson asked some of the Vanguard fans, their own fans, for a favor. Cheer for Gainesville instead. The Gainesville players were shocked when they walked into the court to find their own signs of support, their own cheerleaders, even their own fan base, fan section. Half of the crowd was assigned to cheer for Gainesville. But as the game went on, everybody started to cheer for Gainesville. One Gainesville player said this, When I'm an old man, I'll be thinking about this. Hudson Bradley, one of the organizers, said this about the game. I mean, every time they scored, the gym just lit up with cheering and clapping, and everyone was on their feet. It showed me that the real impact and encouragement and support can have upon people. And so here's how journalist Steve Hartman summarized this story. This is what he said. We all need someone to believe in us. We all need someone who knows our mistakes and loves us anyway. And for that, the Gainesville players can think, can't thank those boys enough. I love that line. We all need someone who knows 
our mistakes and loves us anyway. Isn't that, in a nutshell, the gospel? That God knows who we are, that God loves us, that God cares for us. And not only that, but, but God actually does something for us in sending the unique person to come and offer himself as a sacrifice for our sin so that we can live in newness of life? Isn't that the wonderful grace and the mercy of God? Isn't that a demonstration of what God has done for us? And, and we see that in other ways, and it resonates within our hearts. And when we look to scriptures, we know that, that God loves us and God cares for us. In the text that we're going to look at, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, listen to what the Bible says. It says this, but because, the Apostle Paul writing to people at Ephesus, he says this, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. For it is by grace you have been saved. According to the Bible, we are in this prison called sin, transgressions and sin and suffering and all of that. And what God does, despite of the condition that we're in, he comes and sends Jesus to go to the cross and offer himself as a sacrifice for sin so that we can experience the newness of life in an incredibly brand new way. The goodness of God is on display in the unique person of Jesus Christ. What I want to do is continue our series, One Word That Will Change Your Life. Grace. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at grace that's demonstrated to us in the idea of salvation. I'm going to invite you to turn your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And, and what we have here is we have a text from the Apostle Paul. Paul visited the city of Ephesus. Paul loved these people. Paul cared about these people. He cared about their lives. And now, as he's writing this letter back to them, he's acknowledging who they are. And what he wants to do is he wants to remind the people. He's writing to believers, right? He's writing to believers about the unique relationship that they had and, and the beauty of that relationship that it's formed by grace in the unique person of Jesus Christ. It's the beauty of our relationship with God. Our relationship with God has been radically, radically changed. Romans chapter 6 talks about newness of life. doesn't matter where you would find yourselves, how difficult, how hard life is. We can experience this newness of life. So what I want to do is I want to read the text. As I read, I want you to just listen. Listen to the beauty of God's grace. Listen to the beauty of that unmerited favor that God has given to us as Paul writes in this passage. Hear the word of the Lord. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects or deserving of wrath. Verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. For it is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Why? In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You 
have been given an incredible gift, an undeserving gift, that you have a relationship with the creator of the world through Jesus because of what he's done for us. And we should respond to that. Look at verse 10. For it is, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's the beauty of God's grace, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you that if any one of us are in Christ, the old things passed away, behold, new things have come. That if we are in Christ, our lives are radically different. And you have showered us with incomparable riches, the incomparable riches of your grace. You have showered us with favor and honor because of Jesus. And Father, this morning we simply want to look at this subject of grace, the salvation that we enjoy, and we want to once again be reminded of all that you have done for us so that we would live radically different lives, Lord, that we would live as light in the midst of darkness. Father, thank you for changing my life. Thank you for changing every life here. And Father, we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you were to go back and read the book of of Ephesians, if you were to go back, there is no doubt one of the major themes of that book is this idea of grace. Chapter 1, verse 6 says, We have been adopted into God's family according to his glorious grace. In other words, so now grace is glorious. In chapter 1, verse 7, we have been forgiven of our sin in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So God's grace is glorious and God's grace is rich. In chapter 3, verse 2, the apostle Paul recognized that his life had radically been changed on the road to Emmaus because of God's grace in his life. And now what God had done is God had called him to be an administrator of God's grace, a steward of the gospel of God's grace. He recognized that he had been entrusted with something to do. And so in our passage, the text says this, we are saved by God's grace so that you and I might become beacons of God's incomparable grace, not only now, but in the age to come. That God's grace would be a beacon of light to all people around us. And he does that so that we would honor and glorify him for his grace. God's unmerited, inexhaustible, unmerited favor that he has given to us in the unique person of Jesus Christ surrounds our lives. You cannot earn your salvation. You cannot work for your salvation. The only thing that we can do is trust the Lord Jesus Christ in faith for what he has done for us. So what I want to do in this text this morning is this. There's three three thoughts. Number one, there's a problem. There's a problem in our life. Number two, in the midst of that problem, there's a provision. And the last thing I'm going to look at, there's, there's something that we need to do. There's something that we need to produce, if you will. There's a purpose for our life, and that's where we're going to go this morning. So let's begin with the problem. Look at verse 1 again. What is the problem? He says this, As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to notice the, the depth in which Paul goes to point out to us what it means for you and I to be dead in our transgressions and sins. We are alive, but spiritually we are dead. When when theologians talk about this idea of being dead in our transgressions and sins, they talk about it in three ways. Number one, they they talk about original sin. There's this idea, this concept of original sin. You were born in sin, I was born in sin. Look at verse three. 
all of us also lived among them, what, in that transgression and sin, at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Let me ask you, where did that sinful nature come from? Where, where did it come from? It, it goes all the way back to Adam, all the way back to Adam and Eve. This concept of sinful nature lives inside of us. It's something that's true of absolutely every person. We are born in the state of sin. That's why we possess a sinful nature. David, in Psalm 51, notice what he writes. David understood this concept. He understood and recognized his own sin. Psalm 51 says this, Surely I was sinful at birth from the time my mother conceived me. There is inside of us this concept, this idea of a sinful nature. We possess a sinful nature. That's original sin. Paul in Romans chapter 5 put it this way. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam and Eve, Adam, and death through sin, what happened? They all died. God told them, when you eat of this, you're going to die. That absolutely happened. And in this way, death came to all men because all sin. You and I are born sinners. There's this inclination, this sin nature that abides deep inside of us. And something needs to happen in order for that to be changed. So there's original sin. But notice Paul talks about inherited sin. Look at verse 10. Verse 2, I'm sorry. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Listen, I don't ever recall my mom and dad sitting down with me going, listen, we want to teach you how to do wrong. I don't ever recall them doing anything like that. And I don't ever recall sitting down with our children and sitting down and saying, listen, I, I, I want to teach you how to sin. Just watch your mom, right? <laughs> no, 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 that's not at all. Unfortunately, my children learn certain things about sin from me. They learned it from me. There's this idea, if you, of inherited sin. It's passed down. It's following the ways of this world. We see it all around us. So there's inherited sin. There's this idea of original sin. But there's also this one final aspect. It's this. It's personal sin. The way that you would sin and the way that I sin. There is this aspect of personal sin. There's a sin nature inside of it. But each one of us had this unique, unique, our own unique way of sinning. Look at verse 1 again. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. Verse 3 talks about following desires, the cravings, the deceitful desires that lay deep down inside of your heart. The way that you might sin, the way that I might sin, the way that somebody else might sin is deep down inside of us because sin comes out of us. It's not necessarily external. It lies deep within us inside of our hearts, inside of our minds. Listen to how Jesus described sin, if you will. Jesus is doing some teaching, and a guy comes up to him and he says, listen, I want to follow you. I want to go after you. I want to follow you. And he tells Jesus this. He says, first of all, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said, follow me. And he says, Lord, let me go and bury my father. Now listen to how Jesus describes. Notice how he responds to him. He says this. Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Isn't that interesting? Let the dead bury their own dead. Well, he was alive. What's he referring to? He's talking about they were spiritually dead. Allow the spiritually dead to go ahead and bury the dead. Why? Because there's something, there's an inclination deep inside of us where we are separated from God because of our sin. 
whether it be original sin, whether it be inherited sin, whether it be our own person, there is this seed deep down inside of us that says we are sinners. Now listen, there's no doubt that we all sin in different ways. There's a lot of good moral people out there. But the standard is not you. The standard is God. And God is the one who sets the standard for morality, for righteousness, for holiness. He is the one who sets the standard. And it doesn't matter how good you are. There's still this inclination deep down inside of us for us to sin and miss the mark. I came across this illustration that kind of reminds us, if you will, of, of, of our understanding of sin, even at a young age. There's a four-year-old girl, a, a guy by the name of Tony Smith. He tells the story about his daughter who was four years old. And this is an, a fascinating illustration. He says this, I was sitting at my desk in my study after having reprimanded my four-year-old daughter for misbehaving. I heard a gentle knock on the door. Come in, I said. Four-year-old. Bethany entered and then matter-of-factly said this, Daddy, sometimes I am good and sometimes I am bad. And that is just the way it is. And then she got up and walked out of the room. And he thought to himself, you know what? That is a very profound theological statement for a four-year-old to come to a recognition. Sometimes I'm good. Sometimes I'm bad. And that's just the way that it is. And he had an opportunity to go to his daughter and to talk to her about this idea of sin nature and to talk to her what it means for us to acknowledge who Jesus is and what it means for us to ultimately acknowledge that that is the why that she, that is the reason that Jesus came to offer himself as a sacrifice on the cross. He is our savior. There is a problem in our life and what sin does when it means we're dead in our trespasses and what sin ultimately means is we're separated from God. We're separated from a holy God in the way that God ultimately created us to be to honor and glorify him sin separates us from him romans chapter 3 verse 10 offers an incredible insight into the depth of sin notice what it says paul writing to the people at rome says this because and the reason is is one of the reasons this is in here because there's always one or two people that says but there's a lot of good people in the world i do good things notice what the text says there is no one righteous not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks for God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. You would think with all the billions of people who lived on the planet of the earth, there would be one Mother Teresa among us who would do absolutely good. The Bible says, no, the standard is too high. The standard is the holiness of God, the perfection of God. Our sin separates us. It's not just bad stuff. God is not just up there pushing a button and trying to, to delete all the bad things that we do, like some kind of cosmic killjoy. What sin does is sin ultimately destroys what God has created us to do. And that's to honor, glorify, and worship Him. Sin destroys us on the inside. Romans chapter 8 says this, those who are controlled by the sinful nature, what? Cannot please God. If I continue to allow the sin nature to run inside of my life, what it allows me to do is I, I cannot please God, I cannot honor Him. And by the way, if you've tried this before, if you've tried to live your life for honor and glorifying God, a lot of times we fall short of all that God would have for us because we can't do it on our own strength. 
If you were here last week, I, I used the, the uh, example of what Ben Franklin did. He set up those 13 virtues. And as he set up those 13 virtues, he found there's no way these wonderful virtues, a lot of them would probably be based, based upon Scripture. I cannot do all of these things because there's something inside of us that gives me a propensity to disobey. That's why we have Romans chapter 3, verse 23 that says this, For all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. My sin keeps me from honoring and glorifying God for who He is and what He's done and the way ultimately that God created me in my life. And it is such a problem. Transgressions and sin is such a problem. The text says this in verse 3, Like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath, God's anger, God's holy disposition toward sin. I don't know about you, but that kind of frightens me. Yes, God is a God of love, but he's also a God of justice, and he's also holy. And we can't just separate the parts that we like about God, God being a God of love, without looking at the the fact that God is holy, and he's righteous, and he's just, and and he demands certain things of our life. When you go back and read Romans chapter 1, there is a present dimension where God's wrath is being revealed. It's being revealed against all ungodliness. It means this, what's happening is people are rejecting God's revelation. They see God's revelation. They know God's revelation. They see what's out there. They're suppressing the truth about God's revelation, if you will. Romans chapter 1, there's a present dimension of God's wrath being revealed. But there's also a future. There's a future revelation of God's wrath for sin. The Bible says this, it is a dreadful thing, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. There is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I I wish it was different. I wish it was really different, but I can't. This is what the Bible says, that we are people who are dead in our transgressions and sins, and something needs to happen in our life. I don't know if you're familiar with a guy by the name of uh, Dr. Edwin Lutzer. Edwin Lutzer was a pastor at Modi Church, a wonderful church in the Chicago area for many, many years. He retired a couple of years ago, but he used to go to Moody Pastors Conference. He's on KSIV. I mean, this guy has written a lot of books, but he was also a professor at um, Trinity uh, Seminary, and he would teach the preaching classes there. And he did something, whenever the students were in a preaching class to him, he would take them on a field trip, and this is what he would do. Every year, he would take his students on a field trip to the local cemetery so they can preach. He says this, I take them to the local cemetery in Deerfield, Illinois, and I have them all gather around a certain gravesite. I point out the name. Then I tell one of the students, preach the gospel to Mr. Smith. They look at me like I'm nuts. So I preach to Mr. Smith with enthusiasm. Sir, Jesus died for your sins, and you must put your faith in him. I look at the students and I tell them, this is no different than preaching the gospel to unsaved people. The Bible says that they are dead in their sins. You can preach your heart out, but nothing will happen unless God does a miracle inside of them. That's what it means to be dead in your trespass. What does it mean to be dead? It means you are dead. The only way a dead person can come alive is if something on the outside comes to him. And that's the problem of being in our transgressions and sin. We're dead, but there's a provision. 
That's where Jesus comes in. That's where the provision of who God is and what he's done for us comes in. Look at verses 4 and 5. What does God do? Some of you have a version, New American. It says, but God, verse 4 says, but God, what does he do? God comes in and God provides for us in an incredible way. Notice what verse 4 says. It says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions and in our sin. Even when we were in a state of rebellion against God, what happens? There is a great reversal. God has made us alive together with him. Something has changed. Because of our ultimate faith and our trust in the grace of God, there's this great reversal where now we are now united with the person of Jesus in a mighty and beautiful way. Notice how Paul describes the provision. Notice how he describes God's goodness, if you will, in these verses. First of all, verse 4 talks about God's love. It's God's what? It's his great love toward us. That God loves you so much that he sent his son to go to the cross in spite of your sin, in spite of all that was going on in your life. He sent him to the cross to offer himself as a sacrifice for your sin and for my sin. We call that substitution. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 says this. How does God demonstrate his love toward us? This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. You want to know what love is? This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. He sent Jesus to be my sacrifice, to take my place on the cross for my sin. I'm dead in my sin. I'm dead in my transgression. Jesus goes to the cross and dies as a substitution in my place. That is the depth of God's love for us, despite the condition that I was in. God's love is great. Look at his mercy in verse 4. God's mercy flows out of what? Out of his goodness. It flows out of his love. What is God's mercy? He doesn't give me what my sins and transgressions ultimately deserve. And what is that? Punishment for my sin. He withholds that by giving us his mega, rich, wonderful mercy, if you will, and gives us grace. Listen, you may blow it this week. I may blow it this week. But God continues to shower us with his grace and with his mercy because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. There is a richness of God's mercy. Do you experience that? Do you feel that? God's love is great. God's love comes to us in the richness of his mercy. And verse 5 and says, it says, by grace you've been saved. Over and over he uses this phrase of by grace we have been saved. Have you experienced the grace of God in your life? It says by grace you have been saved. Saved from what? The idea of saved means you're in trouble. You're in peril. You could be walking off a cliff. You could be in grave danger, object of God's wrath, sin, and transgressions. Take us down a road where we have this inability to please God. There's this lack of hope. We're open to eternal destruction. All of that is open to us in our lives because of our sin. Notice how Paul describes the great change that has occurred in our life because of Jesus. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 17, and I hope that this is true of your life. Romans chapter 5, verse 17 says this, For if by the trespass of the one man, one man, we talked about that original sin, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ? There's sin, there's separation, there's wrath, and yet because of what God has done, he's provided God's abundant grace to us, an abundant provision of God's grace has been given to us for those who reach out and receive it by faith and trust in the person of Jesus Christ. Peter experienced God's grace. He ran. Paul, a murderer, experienced God's grace. The thief on the cross had done absolutely nothing worthy in his life to receive anything from God. And yet Jesus tells him, today you will be with me where? In paradise, God's grace is beautiful. And because you've experienced God's grace, and because I've experienced God's grace, and God's mercy and God's love, we need to be entirely different kinds of people because he's changed us to live for him. We have great love, we have mercy, we have grace. And notice God's kindness. It's God's kindness in chapter 2, verse 7. So there's a song that we sing. It's called 10,000 Reasons, and it's Bless the Lord. And there's a second line that, that goes like this. And this is the reason why I love this song. The second line goes like this. You're rich in love, and you're slow to anger. Your name is great, and your heart is what? Kind. Your heart is kind. That's the beauty of God. That's the beauty of Jesus. That his heart is kind. In the midst of my sin, in the midst of my rebellion, in the midst of all of that, God comes to us in his grace and says, I'm going to offer you kindness in the unique person of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. God in his grace provides love. He provides mercy. He provides grace, and he provides kindness. And there's a reason why he does that. Because he wants you to know and feel and experience a union with him that is powerful. So I have a, a piece of rope in front of me. It's about six inches long. And uh, I, I keep this on my shelf um, in, in my office. And, it, and it's a reminder of a particular event. Uh, many years ago, Jim and Connie Knowlton uh, were a part of our missions conference. And now this is, this is over 10, 15 years ago. And uh, what Jim did, Jim Knowlton, um, what he did was he took a napkin and he, and he split the napkin in two and then he created two, he rolled the, the two halves up in, into like a little piece, two little pieces together. He rolled them up. And then what he did was he, he took those two pieces and he wound them together and he created this rope, this one rope. And this is just a great picture. The reason I kept it, this is a great picture to me of our union with Jesus, of us being united with Jesus because of what he's done. My side of the rope, God's side of the rope, we're wound together, we're bound together, and I am united with Jesus, if you will, in an incredibly powerful, powerful way. Notice what it says here. I am united, united with Christ, and I am made alive. I'm no longer spiritually in. I am made alive in Christ. 
I am spiritually, spiritually awakened to the wonder, to the beauty, the goodness of God and all that he's done for us in providing Jesus to come to us. Knowing that I've been raised up with him. I'm raised up with Christ, if you will. I, I, I'm a part of this world, but there's a part of my life where my life is in heaven. I, I, could, I could leave here and in a moment of time be gone from this world. And that moment of time, I enter into the very presence of God because my citizenship is in heaven. I'm alive to spiritual things. I've been raised up with Christ. And notice what all says. I'm seated with him in the heavenlies. I'm seated with him in the heavenlies. Have you ever experienced honor in, in a way that that's very, very kind of unique, kind of honor? I, I, I've never experienced that except for last year when uh, we were going to fly to see my dad. And my dad got a hold of our plane tickets, and he bumped Laura and I up to first class. Do you know what first class is? You walk in front of everybody, and you kind of like, yep, I'm a big, I'm a big wig. I didn't tell him that somebody else paid my way there. But you, you, you go in front of everybody, and you got the big seat, and you got the drinks there. You got, you, you, I'm seated in the first class. And that felt good. Did you realize that I'm seated in the heavenlies? I am positionally seated in the heavenlies alongside of Jesus. Why? Because I am so united with him. I'm alive in Christ. I've been raised up with Christ. And I, my position, I am seated with Jesus in the heavenlies. You don't think you're anything? You don't think your salvation matters? You don't think what God has done in your life is incredibly powerful? The King of kings and the Lord of lords has radically changed your life? and place you in a position where you're going to worship him forever and ever? And you're not trash. You're beautiful. And God has created you that way. And, and, and if, there's, if there's a problem, sin, we need grace. The provision of grace is Jesus. And there's a purpose, and that's what I want to close. And then we're done. Notice the purpose, verse 7 and 10. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of grace expressed in his kindness to us. Clint, we're in heaven, seated in heaven. Clint, how'd you get here? I don't know. I, I really don't know. And people are going to look at me and go, man, I don't know how you made it up here either. It's all God's grace. It's all God's Do you realize when you get to heaven, you're going to see people and go, how in the world did you get here? And they're going to look at you and go, how in the world did you get there? Because of God's grace. Think about it. There are people on death row who are going to be in heaven because of God's grace and God's mercy. And there are people who are wonderful and beautiful and highly moral. They're going to be in heaven because of God's grace, because they've reached out and accepted and trusted God's grace. And they are a beacon and a light of God's grace. And not only is that happening now, but it's going to be for the ages to come. When we're in heaven, we are going to be shadowing, or not shadowing, showing out a beacon of light of God's grace. Verse 10 says this, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do God's work, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God created you to do good work. Three points of application before we leave, and then we're done. Number one is this. Are you trusting in Christ? It says this, for by grace you have been saved, but through faith. Are you trusting in Christ? Have you reached out and trusted the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, saying, I I'm going to live for Jesus? Jesus, I believe in your grace. I I'm going to believe and trust in you for what you've done. 
on the cross as my atoning sacrifice. Have you done that? That's the requirement. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the first point of application. The second point of application is this, that now and in the messianic age and in the new heavens and new earth and in the eternal state, all of us have been given God's grace so that we can beacon a light of God's grace. We, we are a, a light of, of the wonder and the beauty of all that God has done to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. It's his incomparable grace, if you will. And you and I are to be reflectors of that grace in your job, your school, wherever you go, be, be, be a reflector of God's grace. Man, look at what God has done in my life. I'm going to express grace to that person over here. Maybe that's what that person needs is, is God's grace because of what God has done for you. See, when you understand what God has done for you, you're going to react differently to the guy down the street, to your neighbor who's driving you nuts, the person next to you at school. When you recognize what God has done for you, respond to God's grace, live out God's grace. And, and the last thing is this. You are God's handiwork. You are God's handiwork. What's interesting about the word handiwork is this. The only other time that that word handiwork is used is in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Let me read Romans chapter 1, verse 20. And it says this. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. That concept, that phrase, what has been made, poema, is the same work, handiwork. Same word in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. So, if this has the idea of God's handiwork, how does God make himself known in Romans chapter 1? He creates. He speaks the very world into existence like a potter. He creates. And by the way, that word is where we get the word for poem. How do you create a poem? Some of you are very artistic and talented and can write. And you can sit down and you can write and create a poem. It's your handiwork. What Paul is reminding the people here is you are God's poem. You are God's handiwork to do good works and to display God's grace and God's mercy to other people. Listen, God fashions you and a unique and wonderful and powerful way as God creates the universe and he wraps it all together and he continues to preserve it. And you and I are God's handiwork and God's beauty so that we can live out a life of grace. Isn't that awesome? That's what God has given to us in Jesus. That is God's grace and our salvation. Let's live and be people of God's grace. And let's be proclaimers of God's grace and what he's done for us. Father, I thank you for your grace that saved each one of us in this room. And Father, I pray that if there's someone who, here who has not reached out and accepted the abundant provision of your grace, that they would simply do that by faith. They would simply, in the quietness of their heart, say, God, I recognize myself as a sinner. I recognize that I cannot do this on my own. And Father, I simply ask that you would come into my life through the power of the Holy Spirit. You would change me and transform me in the image of your Son. And Father, I pray for those of us that we would rely on the presence 
and the power of the Holy Spirit to change us, to conform us into the image of your Son. Father, thank you for this wonderful salvation that we enjoy. Amen.